Lord in our hands. Uh, I had a conversation actually just today of a fellow who said, been studying uh, my uh, Bible and I've found several places where the King James was not translated correctly. And I said, whoa, wait a minute, let's back up here and talk about this. And I said, listen, if we're not sure about our Bible, then we can't be sure about our doctrine. We've got to have a pure word. And uh, gave him some things to think about and to talk and to study on and to look at. And uh, he wrote those things down, some questions I asked him that he couldn't quite answer. And I, I'm praying and hoping that he'll see this and that he'll uh, realize that uh, if we don't have a pure word in our language for this generation, then we cannot be certain of our doctrine being pure. And we want to make sure that we are doing things the way God says. If he says it in Scripture, we want to do it. And um, we want to do it his way. Revelation chapter 7, we've been studying now for a few months in the idea of prophecy and end time events. <coughs> and um, we have uh, made it all the way to chapter 7 so far. And we're going to go and give a little bit of an upgrade, uh, update from last week since we've got some folks here that weren't here last week. And then we're going to finish, Lord willing, we'll finish the chapter tonight. The uh, book of Revelation and, and other books like it, Daniel, Ezekiel, some of these other prophetic books that are so closely entwined, um, are, are given to us. The Bible says all Scripture is profitable to us. And so we've got to understand that, that the purpose for studying uh, prophecy is not just so that we can gain knowledge and file it away in our, our mental filing cabinet. Uh, there is a purpose to it. Uh, I think that there are two very obvious ones. Number one is to give us great peace and great comfort. In fact, uh, both John... Uh, in John chapter 14 and, and Paul in First Thessalonians chapter 4, both of them speak of the fact uh, that there is a comfort that comes from there. Jesus, when he was speaking, said, Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And he speaks of the end time events and saying, Listen, don't let your hearts be troubled. Uh, Paul said, Wherefore, comfort one another with these words, speaking again of end time events. And so the, one of the first reasons for uh, Scripture in, in studying of prophecy is for his children not to be not to be worried, not to be fearful. Uh, there ought to be a, 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 an anxiety or a, 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 an anxious looking for, an expectation. I guess would be the best word to use. Looking for the great and glorious appearing. Titus, uh, Paul told Titus this: looking for the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior. And uh, we ought to be looking. So often the Bible refers to the fact that we, as His children, are to watch. We're to be ready. We're to be. We're watching for an unexpected and imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so uh, there's great comfort here to know that because we are saved, we are able to escape the wrath that God is going to pour out in the last days on those that have rejected Him. And so there's a great comfort to that. The second reason I believe that we study prophecy, and another great reason to, is to bring conviction to our hearts to be diligent and wise with the time that we have in serving Him. Uh, if these things are true, if the time is unknown to us, if it is imminent and could be at any moment, then we need to live with eternity in view. It ought to bring conviction to our hearts in two areas. Number one, the way that we live. And number two, the way that we serve. And so I think we find several very, very productive reasons to study it, not just. I think sometimes we come to scripture and we sit here. Okay, we're going to have a series on prophecy. Everybody's like, "Boy, I'm so interested in that. That's going to be interesting. We're going to learn some things." And I hope it changes our hearts because it is profitable to us. And so we've looked at some things already in Revelation, 
We dealt with the seven letters to the seven churches. In chapters 4 and 5, we dealt with uh, the, uh, the seven-sealed book. And six of those seals have been opened. And we get to chapter number 7, and there is a pause uh, before the seventh seal is opened. And so in the seventh chapter, we see God doing some things. And uh, let's look in verse number 1. Of chapter number 7, we're going to read the first three verses. And after these things, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. Already, four of the six riders that we've, or four of the six seals that we have studied about, four of them had riders on horsebacks that came and brought war, they brought famine, they brought pestilence, they brought death, uh, they brought natural disasters, and uh, these are some of the things that were already beginning to happen to the earth after the rapture took place. And then there's a pause, and God sends an angel and says, Stop. Hold everything for a minute. Pause the, the, the annihilation of this stuff happening and all the pestilences that are happening. Uh, I personally think, if you go back and study the four writers that are spoken of in chapter 5 and chapter 6, uh, you'll find, I, I believe, that uh, these are not writers that are sent from God, but these are writers that I believe the Holy Spirit has taken His hand off of this earth as far as holding back um, the one that wants to come and take power. And we, we read a little bit about that in Scripture, that when he that, letteth, uh, that now letteth uh, gets pulled out of the way, or the one that's holding him back now and keeping the son of perdition from coming to power now, when he's taken out of the way, the son of perdition is going to come. And we find that in the first rider. We see the Antichrist coming. And then we find the pestilences happening. And so I believe that these first four seals are simply the Holy Spirit taking His hand of, of, of holding things back and saying, not yet, it's not time yet, uh, out of this world. Now, that doesn't mean that He doesn't still work in this world, as we're going to see in chapter 7. Um, but He does take his, whole, his hand of holding things back and holding Satan from doing the things that uh, Satan so much wants to do already. Uh, he's going to take His hand off of that. And we spoke about that last week. If you want some of the notes on that, you can get the recording from last, last week. Um, but it's interesting that we have the four riders. And then uh, John sees uh, four angels. And he's there, the Bible refers to him here as at the four corners of the earth. We talked a little bit about that last week, how that that's uh, significant of the fact that they're filling the whole earth. It doesn't mean they're at a specific spot geographically on the earth but that they extend to all four corners of the earth or all the cardinal directions. They, they fill the earth, and their sole purpose is to uh, pause the hurt that's going on the earth in this, point, in this portion of Scripture. They're, 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 the pestilence is happening. They're there, and the other angel comes to him and says, Stop. Don't do this. Uh, stay where you're at. Don't, don't allow any pestilence to take place until those that are going to be sealed are sealed. Now let's look in verse number 5. Or verse number 4, I'm sorry. And I heard the number of them which were sealed, and there were sealed in 140 and 4,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. And we took some time to talk a little bit about this. <coughs> 12,000 out of each tribe. And they are sealed. Now, this is not the mark of the beast. 
This is a seal that God sets in their head. If you'd like to learn a little bit more about that, you can refer to Ezekiel chapter number 9, and you'll find some more description and illustration giving there about that mark. Uh, but it will be set in their forehead, and uh, it's to be there for an identifying mark that they are not to be touched with the plagues of the rest of the tribulation period. They are to be uh, escaping from those plagues, and they are not to be touched uh, by those. That does not mean that they're going to escape persecution. Um, they escape the plagues. The plagues are not upon them, uh, and, uh, but they will not escape the, great, the persecution that comes from that. Uh, in fact, we're going to find out as we get into Revelation a little bit further, uh, and we've already studied this uh, slightly, uh, a little bit, uh, a couple weeks ago, that there will be many that are martyred for the Lord Jesus Christ during the time of the tribulation period. And, uh, in fact, we're going to see some of them in this chapter as well. And so we have 12,000 of each tribe. Now, we talked about the fact that there are two tribes that are not mentioned in this chapter that are normally associated with the 12 tribes of Israel. In fact, Revelation is the only book that does not name them in uh, the way that they're named elsewhere in Scripture. Uh, there are two tribes that are left out, and I misspoke last week. I had it right, but I got busy talking, and I got two three-letter names intertwined. You know how that happens when you get talking sometimes. Um, the, uh, the tribe of Dan is not mentioned, and the tribe of Ephraim is not mentioned in, in this list that's given in Revelation chapter 7. Uh, there are some reasons for that, and the Bible, we, we looked at that a little bit last time, uh, that when God was setting the uh, covenant with Israel, and in Deuteronomy chapter number 29, He spoke very clearly of this, that if they would not obey and they would not turn, uh, even at, at the point of uh, having some chastening and judgment brought on them, if they were refusing to, to turn from their idols and their idolatry, that uh, God was not going to have any part with them. And so Dan was notor uh, notorious for, the tribe of Dan was notorious for their idolatry. They were probably out of the 12 tribes of Israel, if you go back and study their history, probably one of the most rebellious, most wicked tribes out of the 12 tribes and were continuously involved in idolatry. And uh, a, a good portion of the tribe of Ephraim was also the same way. And so it's interesting here that um, there are two names that are substituted for those two. And that would be the tribe of Joseph, which is not even really mentioned as a tribe. If you'll remember back, Joseph was uh, the father of um, uh, Ephraim and Manasseh. And uh, so I think partly because there was still a remnant of Ephraim that did hold true to the things of the Lord. There were part of them that stayed true. Uh, that God uses the name Joseph here to represent those that were from the tribe of Manasseh that perhaps did not follow after idolatry, and were more, uh, their hearts were more after the Lord. Um, the tribe of Dan obviously was, uh, was not uh, listed in its entirety, and the tribe of Levi was put in its place and uh, deals with the priestly tribe, which did not have an inheritance and normally is not listed as one of the 12 tribes because they didn't have a land inheritance uh, in the nation of Israel. And so we find these 144,000 Jews, and it's interesting to know, that God does not uh, include the tribe of Dan or the tribe of Ephraim in these that are sealed, meaning that the tribe of Dan, the tribe of Ephraim, are going to go through the pestilences of the rest of the tribulation period. Now, God does not cut them off forever. It's interesting that uh, in two different places in the book of Ezekiel, 
God is going to bring them back into the fold at the end of the tribulation period. And uh, they're once again going to be uh, joined with Him as, their, as His children. And uh, isn't that amazing to see the, the, the long-suffering and the grace of God? And even though He brings judgment upon them for their past sins uh, with rejecting Him and turning to idolatry, He's still a gracious God. And I think a wonderful lesson is taught there. And that is this, that if we continue to uh, fail God and sin and, and, and go through life, and there are some people that say, well, uh, God's grace and God's forgiveness, I can pretty well do what I want to, and His grace is inexhaustible, and it is. And His forgiveness is everlasting, and it is. But that does not mean that you will escape the consequences of your sin. Are you still belonging to Him if you're saved? Absolutely. Are you still His child? Absolutely. But you may have to go through some pestilences because of your sin. And uh, sometimes we get this idea that uh, I've got my salvation settled. I'm eternally secure. I can't lose my salvation. So I can just go out here and live how I want. Paul spoke of that. In chapter number 6 of Romans, he says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He says, God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? And there ought to be, a, when, we, when we were raised to walk in newness of life, when the Holy Spirit came to live inside of us, there, there should have been a death to self and, a, and a, certainly a making alive of the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And He now directs our steps. And how can somebody who is living and walking in the Spirit, which is so often the case in the New Testament, commanded to Christians that we are to walk in the Spirit over and over and over again, in Paul's writings especially, he puts a strong emphasis on walking in the Spirit. Over and over and over again he does this. How can somebody who's going to walk after the Spirit live after the flesh when they are at enmity one with the other? It cannot be done. And so you may choose to live after the world, but you may not be able to choose the consequences of that or the scars of that. There will come some times where we're going to look back and we're going to say, wow, I really wish I had not done that. I'm thankful that God is a long-suffering God. I'm thankful He's a forgiving God. I'm thankful that we are eternally secured. We don't lose our salvation. But that does not give us license to go out and sin. It does not give us license to be rebellious towards God and to turn from Him. And so uh, I think a wonderful lesson is shown here just in the listing of the tribes. It's something obscure, and a lot of times you read through that, you may not even think of something like that. But yet it's so amazing to see God's hand at work. Even in that. Now look in verse number 9. <clears throat> he says, and, behold, and after this I beheld in lo a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and, t- and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. Now, these are the redeemed, those that have been saved. They're in white robes. Uh, the fact that they have palms in their hands, they're giving reverence and praise to God. They're worshiping Him around His throne. And the Bible says this, that there are multitude, a great multitude, which no man can number. So not only are there 144,000 Jews that are going to be sealed, but there's also going to be a great number of folks. The Bible says here, from every tribe, uh, uh, I'm sorry, of all nations, kindreds, people, and tongues. So every, every tongue, every nation, every people is going to be represented in heaven. And this, this kind of helps us understand this, that uh, the Bible, as we get down and look at verse number 10, says, And cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. And all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and, four, and the four beasts, 
and fell before the throne on their faces and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. I'm going to come back to verse 12. We're going to spend some time on that here in just a moment, but I want to move on to 13 for a minute. And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes? And whence came they? Two questions I think we would have. What are these that are in white robes? Where did they come from? Notice what the answer is, and the Bible gives it to us. And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said unto me, These are they which came out of great tribulation, and have washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. These are those that up until this point in the tribulation period have been martyred for the Lord Jesus Christ for their testimony and have not bowed the knee. They did not take the mark of the beast. They did not worship him. And they have stayed true to the Lord. These are those that have been saved during the tribulation time. And uh, there, is, there is a strong indication here that there will be many, many folks that will not be deceived, that will, will be saved during this time period. In verse number 15 Therefore are they before the throne of God, and serve Him day and night in His temple. And he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. Now I want to back up to verse number 12. Because this great multitude, along with the elders, along with the beasts, along with the cherubims that are uh, flying around the throne uh, that we read about in Isaiah, all of these things that are happening there around the throne of God, they fall down and they worship Him. And notice what it says in verse number 12, saying, Amen. And both the beginning and the end of verse 12 begin with the word Amen and end with the word Amen. And uh, the word Amen is, is a, uh, it's a Greek word that's been brought across into English because there is no English word for Amen. Uh, so we just say Amen. Uh, and so uh, the Amen is the idea of strong agreement or let it be so. Uh, it's a sealing of the truth, saying, yes, that is truth, and we know it to be so, let it be so. And uh, it's interesting that when they begin to worship, there is something that they say. There's seven things that are given here as attributes of their praise. And it begins and it ends with, amen. Let it be so. Let these things... So let's see what it says here, verse number 12, because if they're doing it, and we're going to be doing it one of these days, why don't we get a head start on it now? Why don't we make these the things we practice in our lives now? Let's take a look in verse 12, saying, Amen. Notice this, he begins with blessing. We talked a little bit about this. I'm not going to reiterate this next uh, uh, from last week. You can go back and listen to the tape, but I do want to say this, that these are not things that are the attributes of God that He does for us. But rather, these are the attributes of our praise to Him. These are things that ought to characterize what we're giving Him thanks for, what we're praising Him for, what we're worshiping Him for. And so when it comes to us saying, I want there to be blessing to the Lord, what do we mean by that? Uh, when we pray sometimes, uh, we say, Lord, bless this over here and bless this over here. What do we mean when we say, blessing be unto the Lord? Uh, I looked up the word blessing in the Webster's 1828 Dictionary, and uh, along with praise and worship and that sort of uh, idea of the, the definition, it used another Old English word that we don't use very often. It used the word extol. 
And I thought, boy, I don't know what that one... I mean, I know the gist of extol, but I've never looked it up to see what it specifically it means. And so I looked that one up. And uh, it, said, it said to magnify, to bless, to praise. And I thought, you know, it's amazing. We spoke about this last Wednesday night. Uh, I, uh, I struggle sometimes with seeing some things. I have to wear glasses. And I'm at the point where I need bifocals. Lord willing, I'm going to get that taken care of next week sometime. But... Um, uh, you know, we magnify things so that we can see them, what, more clearly. When we say we want to give blessing to the Lord, what we're saying is, Lord, I want people to see you more clearly. I want to say the things in front of others. I want to give you the praise. I want to give you the things that will allow them to see you more clearly, for you to be magnified in their sight. That's what it means. When we give praise, how often is our praise man-centered? We've got to even be careful about even talking about our own churches. I got convicted of this a couple of weeks ago. I was thinking on this and, and praying about it and studying about it. And I really got convicted about this. It's, it's amazing how many times a church will, will put on their advertisements or their church handouts, uh, great family atmosphere. Children's programs, nurseries, uh, Awanas. Uh, we're going to have all these things, and if you'll come, you'll enjoy it. It'll be such a great thing. We are pointing people to what? Here. We're not pointing them to Him. Why not say this? Why not rather in our, in our literature say, we're a church that loves God with all of our heart. We want Christ to be known. We want His Word to be preached. We want Him to be exalted in this place. Why not point people to Christ? We do things man's way, doing things that we think will appeal to the flesh nature of men to get them to come to our church. And there is no indication anywhere in Scripture that that is the way we're supposed to do it. But we are to lift Him up. And I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto me, Christ said. A church is to exalt Him. Our praise, we've got to be careful. Our praise has got to be God-centered, not man-centered. I'll say this, our worship must be God-centered, not man-centered. When I praise Him, am I drawing attention to me or am I drawing attention to Him? When I worship, am I drawing attention to me or am I drawing attention to Him? Blessing. Notice what else it says here in verse number 12. Saying, Amen, blessing and glory. What about the glory that belongs to the Lord? You know what, you know what these, these creatures are saying, these elders are saying when they say these things? They're saying, whatever glory that there is about me, whatever people can look at and say there's some good thing about that person or about that thing, it is not our glory to possess, it's His. Because any good that you have or any good that I have is not because of us. The Bible says there is none good, no, not one. I, I, I get a kick sometimes. Somebody will ask me how I'm doing or, so, or I'll ask somebody how they're doing. They'll say, well, I'm doing good. I'll be like, no, there is none good. The truth is there is none good. And anything that we are. Can you remember back to before you got saved? Think about that. Uh, some of us were pretty, pretty uh, ornery little critters, you know. And uh, we weren't a whole lot. In fact, the truth is, none of us were anything before we got saved. Everything that we are, if there's any good that comes from our life, 
If there's any change, if there's any spiritual growth in our life, it's not because of our efforts, it's not because of what we've done. It's because of what He's done in us through His Holy Spirit. Our praise needs to give Him magnification. We need to bring clarity to Him. We need people to see Him. We need to make sure that the glory of our praise is pointed to Him and not us. Jesus even spoke of it on the Sermon on the Mount as He said that men may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. I don't live right, do right, act right, have high standards, serve God because I want people to see what I do. I do it because I want people to see what a great God I have. What a difference He has made in my life. And if we do it for any other reason than that, then we are saying, God, I'm taking your glory and I want it for myself. What a difference. There's a song written years ago that says, What a change there has been in my life has been wrought since Jesus came into my heart. I have light in my soul for which long I had sought since Jesus came into my heart. What characterizes our praise? Is our praise man-centered or is it God-centered? There's no doubt these folks in verse number 12 are doing nothing but pointing their praise to Him. Saying blessing and glory. Notice this, wisdom. Whatever wisdom there is, is not from us. It's from Him. I want all wisdom to belong to Him. Any wisdom that there is that can be pointed to that people would say, wow, what a wise decision that is. What a wise thing that was. It's only because God gave it. James said, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, which giveth all men liberally, and upbraideth not. You say, boy, I, I want to have wisdom in my life. It's not yours. It's got to be His. I want this wisdom to be His. Notice what it says here verse number 12. He says, Blessing, glory, wisdom, and thanksgiving. We want to give Him thanksgiving. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before His presence with singing. Know ye that the Lord, He is God. It is He that hath made us, and not we ourselves. We are His people, and the sheep of His pasture. Enter into His gates with thanksgiving, and into His courts with praise. Be thankful unto Him, and bless His name. For the Lord, He is good. His mercy is everlasting. His truth endureth to all generations. Our praise needs to be grateful and thankful to Him. You know why? We find also in verse number 12 that our honor, any honor that we give, I, I, I understand and I know the, the, the well-minded, well-intentioned thoughts that there are sometimes of recognizing this side of heaven. <clears throat> Faithful Christians. And occasionally we'll hand a plaque out or we'll give um, recognition to someone for their faithfulness in ministry. We've got to be so careful of this. Because any honor that is to be given is not for us. If there's been longevity and faithfulness in ministry, it's not been because of anything I've done or anything any other man or lady that served in the, in the ministry has ever done. It's because of God's grace being worked in our lives. And that honor goes to Him. Men that get recognized, boy, decades, four decades, five decades of ministry, and we have a big parade and a big, big great day at church. 
And I'm not saying you don't ever encourage somebody. I'm not saying you don't ever give a pat on the back to them. But we've got to be careful of what we're honoring and how we're lifting up people. That we don't lift up men, but we lift up God. We need to honor Him. All of our honor goes to Him. Notice He also says this, Power and might be unto our God forever and ever. These folks are sitting here looking at the throne. And John's watching this. And notice what it says in verse number 11. It says that they fell before the throne on their faces and worshipped God. Fell on their faces and worshipped God. If we could ever see God the way that He is, and by the way, that ought to be the pursuit of our life, to daily see Him more clearly. If we could ever see Him the way that He really is, I would say this, our worship would be a lot different than it is anymore. You look around at the churches and the religious institutions around our country that have worship services. And they are nothing like verse number 12. They're all about the men and all about the people, all manward. We've got to be so careful of these things. Here these folks are in heaven. They're already there. They're already perfected. They're already in their glorified bodies, some of them. Some of them are the beings that God has created to do nothing more than to be before the throne and around the throne to worship Him. To cry out, and we sang the song tonight, and I thought such a fitting song. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's their whole purpose. And folks that are perfect now in their glorified bodies, they stand before God, and their worship is, I'm not worthy to stand before Him. All of my blessing, all of my glory, all of the wisdom that is is available, all of my thanks, all of my honor, all of my power, and all of my might, it belongs to Him forever and ever. And John said, Amen. Amen. Oh, that we could learn this. Wouldn't it be wonderful if this side of heaven we could enjoy the overflowing benefits of true biblical worship. Pointing men to God. Bear with me for a moment. We'll be done here in just a second. I was going to get through the chapter, and we may not. There's a number of folks that are saved. There are two questions are answered here. We find that the multitude came and that was seen standing before the Lamb of God from those that had been saved out of great tribulation. And I want you to notice as we get down to verse number uh, 16. It says, They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. If you go back and study the first six seals, you'll find that they were going through those things. They were going through famine. They were going through drought. They were going through war. And they were going through the heat of the earth and the sun bearing down on them. It says, They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne... Oh, my, what a, joy, what a verse this is. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them 
and shall lead them unto living fountains of water, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Oh, my. Wherefore, we'll comfort one another with these words. Amen. What a joy. He's going to feed us. He's going to lead us. The Bible says to the living fountains of water. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. I'm about you. I'm looking forward to that day. And what a joy it is. Isn't it good to be saved? We don't have to go through these things. We have great comfort. But we ought to also be greatly convicted. Because beginning in chapter number 8, we begin to see even greater pestilence and greater judgment. And oh, we want to make sure that our friends, our families, our acquaintances do not go through this. We want to do all that we can to reach them with the gospel while there's a chance. And I hope that that will encourage us tonight in these areas. Let's stand together and we'll be dismissed in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Lord, what a joy it is to our hearts. How often it is so convicting. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to gain from these, from these passages what you would want us to gain from them. Help to teach us the things you want us to learn. Help to stir our hearts and turn them towards you in the way that you would want them to be. May we live with eternity in view. May we be excited over these things, but, Lord, may we also be motivated by these things.